0: Hello, and welcome to the Jewish Heretics Podcast. This is the official podcast of the United Jewish People's Order and the Morris Muncheski Center. We are a secular, progressive Canadian Jewish organization that's been around since the 1920s. My name is David Wall, and I am the community's cultural programmer, and I'll be your host today. For this, the seventh episode of our podcast, I had the great honor of speaking to celebrated socialist, feminist, lesbian Jewish author, poet, academic, and activist, Irina Klepfisch. She was born in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1941. Her father, Michal Klepfisch, killed during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, was a member of the Jewish Labor Bund. Irina and her mother, Rose, lived in Poland throughout the war, passing as non-Jews. They emigrated to Sweden and eventually to America, settling in the Bronx. Irina attended City College of New York and received a Ph.D. in English from the University of Chicago. She was a professor at Barnard for many years. She has taught English, Yiddish, and women's studies, and she retired in 2018. Irina is an important Yiddishist, renowned for her translations of poets such as Katia Malodavsky and Fredel Stock. She's been a longtime political activist, working with groups such as the New Jewish Agenda. She was a co-founder of the Jewish Women's Committee to End the Occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, along with Adrian Rich and others. She was a founding member of the Vilde Chayas, or Wild Beasts, a Jewish feminist group that engaged with politics in the Middle East, as well as international anti-Semitism. She's been publishing poetry and essays for decades, in 2022, she published Her Birth and Later Years, Poems New and Collected, with Wesleyan University Press, which won the Audrey Lorde Award for Lesbian Poetry, It was also a finalist for the 2022 National Jewish Book Award for Poetry. Incidentally, this wonderful book is now available in paperback wherever you buy books online. It was a joy to talk to Irina and to soak in her wisdom, good humor, and inspired pragmatism During these days of violence and seemingly endless right wing victories all over the world. Before we listen to the interview, I think it's important to define a couple of terms. Irina references the Labor Bund a fair bit with good reason. For those who don't know, the Bund was a secular Jewish socialist party formed in Vilna in 1897. The Bund actively campaigned against anti Semitism. It defended Jewish civil and cultural rights and fiercely rejected Zionism, opting instead for the concept of doikite or Hearness, which prescribed seeking liberation for Jews wherever they happened to live. At one point in the interview, she discusses having studied at YIVO. YIVO is the New York-based Institute for Jewish Research, which aims to preserve and study the history and culture of Eastern European Jewry worldwide. Here's our conversation. Hello, uh, Irina Klepfish. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, and thanks so much for taking time out to be in our podcast. One of the central ingredients of our podcast is looking for what I call origin stories, like where did you get your superpowers? Um, uh, By way of example, my mother, who you coincidentally have a lot in common with, may her memory be a blessing, was a... Radical lesbian feminist, longtime activist in many contexts, and she told me that a seminal experience for her when she was a teenager that really launched her activism uh, was experiencing the Rosenberg trials. Mm. Uh, it really radicalized her as a teenager and led to perhaps her 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 sort of lifelong obsession with Being an activist uh, in solidarity with the marginalized. Do you have moments you can point to in your life like that, seminal moments that uh, kind of shaped you?
1: Um, Not exactly. I mean, your mother sounds older, a little bit older than me, because I was, um, we came here in 49 and I was eight.
0: Mm, A bit older, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I was a little bit younger when the, though I vaguely remember the community being really upset about. The Rosenbergs are very nervous about their own status. Most of them were not citizens yet, and, um, and uh, very nervous. though. So, no, my my I have a very much less, you know, kind of dramatic and um, and maybe more selfish kind of history. Um, I grew up um, in a survivors community, a homes community. Uh, who were all Bundists, Jewish labor Bundist activists uh, before the war, and who continued identifying and remembering and memorializing their life in uh, Poland, in Warsaw specifically. Though not everybody was in war from Warsaw. And I kind of grew up hearing about activism and not seeing it very much because the community, the people that I was around with, were not. They were activists then. A lot of them were in the resistance, various forms of resistance during the war, but here they were not really active. They identified still as Bundists. They created a camp. It was more kind of almost a cultural kind of thing, but they were not necessarily activists. And I wasn't either, though I was very taken with and very influenced in terms of my views by the history of the Bund and what I heard. And... Very honestly, I did not become an activist until I was really forced to become an activist, Mm. which is when I came out. And when I came out, one of the things that I confronted, obviously, was homophobia. I came out in 1973, 74. It was not a great time for, for gays and lesbians. And I think nothing activates you more than a than a personal encounter with some kind of disgusting prejudice um, I just did a memorial, I did an, an interview about it which memorialized Minnie Bruce Pratt's work <clears throat> right. and, she, and she talked about it was interesting because she talked about, I mean she was always conscious of racism and it was really anti-racist but what activated her was when they took her kids away because she came out as a lesbian and There's nothing that's, you know, and it was very different for me in the sense that it was it was odd because the history that I had always heard was about anti-Semitism and that whatever anti-Semitism was here, it was not a major thing that shaped my life in the United States. I mean, it was not something that I confronted in the same way that they confronted it in Poland in the 20s and the 30s. So it was really coming out, you know, people very often say to me, oh, you're an activist. And this kind of with a certain amount of admiration. And I like to point out that, you know, if you come out in 1973, you're automatically an activist. I mean, you can't, you couldn't just come out and then go about your life. I mean, you could lose your job, you could lose your children, you could, I mean, it was a very so even if you didn't join an organization, I mean you were in a sense becoming an activist. I I was very lucky. I was able to um immediate, almost immediately within a year, come in t- get in touch with the movement in New York City. I was lucky to be coming out in New York City. And New York City was exploding. It was four or five years after Stonewall. <laughs> um, the gay movement was just, I mean, exploding. I hooked up with a whole bunch, with a bunch of lesbians who were writers and poets. I got to know people like Audre Lorde and Adrian Rich. I mean, it was very, very lucky. And I was kind of, I did not want to be a public. I mean, I wanted to write. I was terrified of being in public, really yeah. terrified. But I was kind of pushed into it because of my background. I mean, um, the background sort of gave me a kind of authenticity that I think American Jews always sort of, you know, the question of the authentic Jew, I don't know how, how, you know, it's still, I guess, a discussion, but in the 70s, 80s and 90s, I mean, everybody, you went into a room and everybody was looking at each other like, who's the authentic Jew in this room? You know, I mean, and... I had I had Europe, I had the Holocaust, I had Yiddish, I was a dyke. I mean, so I was like the perfect <laughs> in some ways I nobody could tell me that I wasn't Jewish, whether it was about being gay or whether it was about be about Israel, nobody could say I was a self-hating Jew. So, I was pushed into it i was it was not an easy thing for me. I was terrified of being in public. I was terrified, and I think a lot of that had to do with my immigration. I had a very difficult immigrant experience coming here. I was very bullied by neighborhood Jewish kids that made me feel like a real greenhorn, which I was um and so I was not you know, I had difficulties. I started teaching. I had difficulties being in front of the classroom so being public was not something that I embraced or looked to or wanted to do, but I was kind of schlepped into it and, um, I had a lot of support and ultimately I was glad to be used. I mean, you know, um, (laughs) I mean, I, you take the opportunity. It was an opportunity to say things and do things. Um, So, and I didn't come out till I was like, I came out when I was 33. Mm. None of this started for me until my mid thirties, really. And it became, it was very cultural. It it was initially, it was around presses and poetry and women's and coffee houses and bookstores and women's studies, you know, that kind of, um, I surround, I was surrounded by people like that. And it was by luck. It was all really, you know, they always say timing is everything. And really, my timing, I couldn't have picked a better place and a more and a better moment to come out. And I was really, very, I mean, in that sense, it was really a privilege because it and though I had all kinds of ramifications for me in the Yiddish world with my mother and family friends, and people were horrified. Many, when I first came out, my mother was um, really upset and I had a certain amount of standing in the in the community because of my father. My father was connected with the underground um, and the uprising of the Warsaw Ghetto, so the name Klepfisch was known um, and they were horrified. This is not what Michal Klepfisch's daughter should be doing. And my first book, Periods of Stress, there was a section on the Holocaust and there was section. The rest of it was about lesbians and people, you know, the lesbians looked at the lesbian and the, and the Holocaust. People looked at the Holocaust. It was a kind of split. I could never get them quite together. <laughs> um, so it was an interesting, you know, both coming out and activism almost happened at the same time.
0: But I mean, it sounds like it's about intersectionality to use a buzzword because you, yes, I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. Uh, Um, it began when you came out, you already had the seeds of it though. It seems to me because of your Bundist upbringing, um, and it began when you came out, yes, because you had this personal experience. But you know, it doesn't always lead to being uh, an anti-Zionist activist. It doesn't always lead to being being so uh, active and so powerful in in these different uh, uh, spaces. So there is something about you. Can you t- I have a kind of romantic notion of what it was like in the early '70s and like uh, the New York gay community. I have this kind of it's like uh, I don't know the, this fantastic milieu of of activism and artistry. Um, Can you talk about, so there was this interview you did with Molly Crabapple in Lux magazine. And in that interview, you made a connection between lesbian Jewish culture in the 70s and what it was like in the Bundists in the early 20th century, this kind of breeding ground of radicalism and excitement. Can you talk about that connection and what that means?
1: It's true. I, I didn't always see it in that way, but... I think that I responded to it um, because of it sort of almost unconsciously. I mean, one of the things that I really admired about the Bund was that um, I want to, by by the way, I want to say, of course, I don't know how many people listening probably know this. The Bund was virulently Mm anti-Zionist. And I was raised, I can't say I was raised in an anti-Zionist movement, but I, I was raised with No attachment to Israel. In fact, at the time, I didn't pay any very much attention to Israel in my consciousness. I went to Israel in 1962 between college and graduate school. I went to Europe for six months. In those days before you were born, probably, you could go out to Europe on $5 a day.
0: Yeah, I remember. I remember uh, <laughs> hearing about that. Yeah. yeah. So
1: um, and I went and I spent three months in Israel for the first, you know, that was my first thing. And that was in 62. So that was before 67, even, you know, I mean, it was a very different country at the time. Um, and I was not enchanted I mean I just I had a distance about Israel I just mm. I wasn't necessarily against it but I certainly wasn't for it and I certainly believed in a in democracy you know that you you root yourself where you are and you're a full Jewish citizen wherever you are what I admired about what the Bund did in the you know in Poland and what I heard about was the multi-pronged approach to it wasn't just that they were fighting for citizenship and anti-Semitism. They were fighting also for their own culture. They were fighting also for problems that they saw in the community. I mean, what I loved about the Bund was that if they saw that people were illiterate, well, they opened schools. If they saw people that were sick, they opened hospitals. And in a way, the lesbians did the same thing. The lesbian and gay movement did the same thing. They saw, they identified problems and addressed them. It wasn't only about homophobia. It was also about the social interactions and context. So in many ways, um, it did, I mean, one of the I had this plan one time. I want, you know, there's a three-volume history of the Bund, Bundisten, uh, which means generations of Bundes. And I was gonna translate, I don't know, pick or translate, um. The biographies of women. I was very interested in women and the Bund and how they function, um, and I I started looking at it. The volume one, and I went through it, and I got so depressed because it, they were so, they were so active, they did so much, and it was all destroyed during the war, and but it was so it was both very impressive, but also, and I, I couldn't read it anymore. I just stopped. I couldn't do it. But that's how sort of I felt about the movement, that we addressed so many issues. I mean, in terms of health, women's health. And I mean, the movement was very broad. It wasn't only exclusively lesbian. There was a feminist movement, our bodies, ourselves. I mean, all these kinds of um, various primes. So that was that I think is what you respond to in a kind of romantic view. And I always say it was the best of time and it was the worst of times. I had a horrible time. I mean, I had terrible problems with homophobia. Um, mm-hmm. And I was basically withdrew from the Yiddish, com- Yiddish community and created, you know, and did my stuff on my own for a number, number of years. And I think they were very happy to get rid of me. <laughs> um, and, um, and it was very difficult with my mother and my partner, um... It was just difficult. I mean, I didn't appreciate very much her problems about my coming out with her friends, which I didn't think very much about. You know, I mean, it's one of the things I tell younger people, trans people, or people who are coming out that have problems with the parents is that, you know, the parents don't really have a choice about when you come out. You just come out and they have to deal with it, not just with you, but with everybody else. And I didn't really, and, and and there was an enormous amount of homophobia. But, you know, it was interesting because obviously I was the first one in that community to come out from the Bronx. Oh. I mean, afterwards, everybody, every other person had a gay child. And they all went to my mother because they thought she was the expert because I was the first one. <laughs> you know, so she got some status. Eventually she got some status out of it. <laughs> But it was very, very difficult and painful to, I always felt very, I mean, I loved that community deeply. I felt very rooted and it was a very painful process to find that distance, experience that distance. There was no open hostility. I mean, I've said this to other people, I think I lost, and I'm not talking now about Jewish, I'm talking about just in general. I think I lost every heterosexual friend within a year and a half, not from any kind of overt homophobia, but just from a kind of distancing, lack of interest, you're not in my circle. I mean, it was really painful. I was lucky that I had a community that I could substitute it with. But that's why I say it's the best and worst, because it was extremely painful. And um even just on a feminist basis, I mean, the whole thing with women and Yiddish, for example, was not about necessarily homophobia. It was about feminism.
0: Mm.
1: You know, um, that was that went on in through the '90s. I mean, <laughs> some of it got, you know, the homophobia definitely got better. I mean, this doesn't seem to be well. We're we're re, who knows what we're going through right now? I shut up to think, but. Um, but it was got it got easier. But the beginning was um, was both extremely exhilarating. I mean, I remember the first women's studies course I taught. Ellie Balkan got me this gig at Brooklyn College. It was a summer course. This is like 1979. <laughs> I'd never. I mean, I put together a women's studies course, and one of my assignments to the students was to visit at least one woman's bookstore. At the time, there were five. <laughs> I mean, there were five women's books, active women's bookstores. And then one of the, my assignments was go look at a books women's bookstore. So that, I think, was a reflection of the activity and the exuberance and the, uh, the amount of energy that was going into building. And, of course, it was the beginning of women's studies. You know, people were beginning to teach courses like this legitimately or illegitimately. Um, I mean, in 82, when I was living upstate, 82, 83, when I was living, Judy and I moved upstate for a couple of years, which didn't last very long. Um, we had to come back. But I taught a Jewish women's studies course at Albany, SUNY, SUNY Albany, for example. Everything was Xerox or Mimigraft or whatever we had in those days. There were no textbooks. I mean, I had to piece together. Anzia I hadn't been even republished yet, you know. Um, but that's the kind of energy. I mean, I had that energy and I was picking up energy from everybody else. Um, we were all doing these, you know, like 10, 11 women took my course at SUNY. It wasn't such a, you know, it wasn't an earth shattering event, but it, but everybody was doing that. I wasn't the only one who, you know, other person was doing a course on lesbians and something, you know, it was, it was just popping but it was also personally extremely, extremely difficult. I mean, you had stories like Minnie Bruce Pratt, who loses her custody of her two sons. One of them is four; the other one is six. I mean, a horror, just a horror.
0: So, so it's almost like the continuum with the with the Bundists and and then the lesbian Jewish milieu in the early seventies. The continuum is that through because there's so much adversity, because it's so rough uh, all of this energy and all of this excitement and all of this artistry and all of this intellectual activity takes place almost out of self-preservation or almost out of, uh, you know, uh, uh reacting against, uh, yeah. And what do you say to feminists, Jewish feminists, trans gay people now? Is it like, are you tempted ever to say, Oh, you think you've got it hard. We had, is there any of that? Or do you see it still as the worst of times and the best of times? Or
1: well, I think it's becoming the worst of times. I mean, there's no doubt about it for me. I mean, I just, I feel I'm horrified. I'm mm. just horrified. I don't like to give too much advice because very frankly, this is a very different kind of world for organizing. It's not the world I organized, um, you know, with mimeographs and <laughs> Xeroxes and mm. whatever. I mean, I think the internet has changed a lot. Um, and I mean, how people organize, I mean, and I, very honestly, um, especially I've been immunocompromised. I had health. I've had health issues for about the last three or four years, and I've been a lot aside from the COVID. I've had to isolate anyway, beside the COVID. Right. So I'm, I'm very distant from, um, in terms of the kind of. I can't go to meet. I couldn't go to meetings. Maybe I can now. It's sort of iffy. I couldn't go to meetings. I couldn't be in closed rooms. I couldn't. Um, I, couldn't, I haven't been able to go on protests or anything like that, so I don't give advice. But I do think the times are dire, I mean, from what I see. Um, I just read today that, you know, I taught at Barnard. I was an adjunct at Barnard for um, 22 years. I t- taught courses on Jewish women in their women's studies department. I just read in today's times that Barnard just changed all its rules and they can't—I mean, that— a thousand teachers and students at Barnard just protested because they're not allowed to say anything pro-Palestinian. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's like that's really bad. I mean that's really really bad. Um, and so I measure that. And so no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm by no means. Frankly, it looks easier to me when I look back than what we're facing right uh-huh. now. We're feeling. I feel we're on the verge of precipice, of a precipice that if we fall into it, I don't know how we're going to crawl out of it. Um, So Mm. I'm not not at all. I'm I'm just saying what I am saying is that not to be so romantic about the past and to recognize, um, I mean, I think there's something really, really existential in a way that I didn't experience that in the 70s. Now, maybe I should have, and maybe other people did, but the people that I worked with, all of us were really just very optimistic. I mean, we sort of didn't, if they told us we couldn't do something, we did it on, you know, that they wouldn't let us join to do something. Then we said, okay, we'll do it ourselves. You know, and there was that energy. You don't want to publish us? Okay, we'll publish ourselves. You don't want to treat us health health? Let's establish our own lesbian network of health, you know, people. Um, and it was like that. There was a kind of ready network, and I mean networking. It wasn't ready. We created networks where people were able to help each other, see each other, and push and this, and that kind of created an optimism, I think, without us saying that. I mean, it was really remarkable, for example, people like Judy Gran or Audrey Lorde or whatever, if they came to do a reading at a coffee house, women who had never, ever read a poem in their life, 500 women would show up. I mean, they were like rock stars.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, there was that kind of a feeling that, I don't know, maybe that's building I haven't, you know, I can't take the measure of what's going on now, but not right now. And with the election here, what's going on with Gaza and Israel, what's going on in Ukraine, everywhere. I mean, it's just it feels very much worse in some ways.
0: Do you feel heartened when you see I mean, it seems unprecedented to me anyway, the idea that you would have Jews against the occupation shutting down whatever it was, was it? Uh, Grand Central, so one of Penn Station. I mean, it that was, seems...
1: It was Grand Central. Yeah, see, that was, seems unprecedented they, to me. They they closed the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, yeah. yeah, I. it is. I mean, it's amazing. I just watched the film for the first time, Israelism, um, mm. uh, two days ago. I saw it for the first time. I mean, there's clearly a shift um, in the American Jewish community with the younger generation, clearly. Um and that's great. it's great. I am very, very nervous what's happening in the larger society mm-hmm. um it's in this coming election mm-hmm. all of this is going to lead. and I feel that this overall picture is what really scares me. I think that the work that's being done by these young Jews is wonderful. I support it um, And, but I think about the larger framework in which it's, you know, taking place and I get really scared. So, I mean, it's, I don't know how you, you know, balance, balance that off. It's Mm -hmm. clearly, you know, it's time that this has happened. I mean, I, I mean, I remember having students at Barnard who went to birth. I did a, for about, I don't know, four or five years. I taught a course on Barnard on on um women in Israel. Stomach ache course, because it gave me a stomachache. <laughs>
0: you called it a stomachache.
1: <laughs> yeah. It gave me a stomach. And finally I just couldn't take the stomach ache, so I stopped. But I remember talking um with students who'd been on birthright, you know, directly, who had gone on birthright and talked about birthright and then talked about them talked about what we were talking about in the class. You know, um, and so, yeah, I I, it's 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 incredible what Jewish Voice for Peace has done, Mm -hmm. has been able to do. um, But like I say, the frame of that is I don't know what it looks like in Canada, how we look in the United States to Canada right now. What are they thinking?
0: Yeah, It's a Uh, mixed bag. We look and see, uh, you know in uh jewish voice for peace we see that incredible activism groundswell of activism we also see trumpism and bidenism and we see it as this uh yeah a very uh, scary moment um and we have our own crap up here Uh, we're not looking down to the united states with some kind of righteousness but mm-hmm. uh, it, yeah, it is a scary time. I would like to return to this if we have time. But I'd like to switch over and talk about your writing and about your poetry a, a bit, because uh, you're, you know, accomplished, remarkable poet, award-winning, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd like to go into that, and of course, it all relates. Um, so you have a, a couple of poems I looked into preparing for this interview, and I've always been aware of your uh, your writing, but. Uh, you have a poem called Fredelstock, which is named after a poet that you've translated, a, a, a woman, a female Yiddish poet. Um, and in the poem, you, you explore something, which I think is maybe a, a, a through line in a lot of your work, which is the challenges or even an impossibility of translating from Yiddish into English. The translation is a problem or a challenge or something very interesting. Um, and in another poem of yours called Ethelgevetterif Mammalosan, with a few words in the mother tongue, um, you actually have both languages on the page at the same time, which I think is interesting. You know, not a lot of poetry does that. And you create this kind of mini glossary of Yiddish words related to female identity. Um, right. can you talk about your experience as this sort of polyglot, especially in terms of Yiddish and English, and how it's informed your poetic voice? And maybe even your worldview, this dichotomy, this this interesting tension, almost dialectical tension between Yiddish and English.
1: Well, these the poems um that you're citing um actually came somewhat later in my writing career. Let me put it that way. I let me go, let me backtrack a little bit. Um I had this very complicated linguistic background. Mm-hmm. I grew My mother tongue was Polish because I was born during the war. And I think even if there hadn't been a war, my parents spoke Polish to each other. My father came from a very, very strong Bundist family that supported Yiddish culture and all of that. But he and his sister would talk Polish to each other. And my parents talked Polish to each other. Anyway, so my first language was Polish. Right after the war, I heard, started hearing Yiddish in Lodz. I lived in Lodz for a year after the war. And I understood it, but my mother kept talking to me in, in Polish, and then we went to Sweden for three years. And in Sweden, we lived in a kind of communal house where people spoke both Polish and Yiddish. I continued speaking Polish. I und- People spoke to me in Yiddish. I understood what they said, but I didn't speak back. I spoke back in Polish. And then I was sent to Swedish school. Oh. And, and I learned Swedish. Don't ask me how. They just put me in a classroom. And for two years, I went to Swedish school. I read, wrote, had friends, spoke, everything. Um, and then we came to the United States. <laughs> and they wanted me to learn English. <laughs> and they, my mother sent me to a Yiddish school for the first time. So I was really ahead of all the other kids in the Yiddish school because I understood everything, but I didn't know the Aleph Beys. I couldn't read. I couldn't speak.
0: And I couldn't so, learn. Sorry, what age are you talking about now when you went to the Yiddish oh, school?
1: Okay, so I'm learning now. I'm forgetting, I'm now forgetting Swedish. I'm still talking to my mother in Polish and I'm going to an English school that doesn't recognize even Jews and I'm going to a Yiddish school that won't recognize English. (laughs) And I'm learning, basically, I'm learning two languages now, new languages. The upshot of it is that I never really conquered Yiddish. I was very shy. Like I say, my immigrant, I did not want to speak and my mother's friends were furious with her for continuing to talk to me in Polish and not switch to Yiddish. There was a lot of bitterness and hostility to the Polish language. And um, and English was my worst subject in school. I couldn't put a sentence together through high school, even in college. It was just my worst subject. Yiddish, I never really conquered. I was getting there because I was doing some postdoc work. At one point at YIVO, but then I came out and I'm pulled away.
0: Sorry, at YIVO, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. That's the only place that had any kind of postdoc work. So, I mean, um, so, but what stayed with me always was Yiddish song and poetry. We were always encouraged to memorize Yiddish poems and to recite them. Wow. And if anybody notices, I do a lot of oral, just even before the Yiddish English bilingual poetry, a lot of my work is kind of oral. People are speaking. And that comes straight from the Yiddish. I mean, because I've always had that. And when I write, no matter what I write, even prose, I read it out loud to myself. I walk around reading it out loud, reciting, whatever. So that oral quality of Yiddish always is there in the English poetry. When I started, when I decided, when I woke up at one point and thought, I mean, I always kind of like, I'm sure you you always think your neighborhood is going to stay exactly the same, blah, blah, blah. One day I woke up It took a trip to Poland to some degree. It took the women's movement that forced everybody to look back. Where did you come from? Where were the women? That kind of thing, everybody was doing that. It was nothing special about women, Jewish women. I suddenly, you know, thought, Well, what about Yiddish and Yiddish culture, and where am I in all of this? Mm. And it was like a rediscovery and a reconnection and a commitment that I hadn't had before. I didn't have the commitment before. I took it for granted that it was always going to be there, and I realized after this trip to Poland in 83, it was the 40th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. My mother wanted to go and we went. I realized in that trip and discussions with women here, especially Gloria Anzaldua, who is Chicana and wrote bilingually in English and Spanish. She thought it was bizarre that Yiddish played no part in my, I had already published two books. And the only the only Yiddish I used was the word bashert and the word rebetzin. That's it, because I didn't know the equivalents. I couldn't find an equivalent. And I became—I mean—I started really looking, and I started looking at the Bund more because my—you know—my education in Bund was very haphazard. I was educated in Bundist principles by eavesdropping. I was a kid. My mother couldn't afford a babysitter so she schlepped me to her friend's house you know and i would sit there and i loved listening to them reminisce i mean these were not people who said how horrible it was in the 20s and 30s these were people who talked about what they did and how they did this and they did that and everything so um you know i sort of absorbed all of that it was in me um And I decided to, you know, I became more interested. And because I was politically active, I started thinking about the bond. I started first reading the histories of the bond. I mean, I really didn't know all that much. I knew it on a very basic kind of level. But I didn't know it concretely as a movement, What, how it happened, why it happened, that they weren't, that they initially weren't committed to Yiddish, then they became committed to Yiddish. Mm. You know, I didn't know any of these details. And it was a fascinating history and it was a great education. Um, but it happened late. It happened in my 30s. And so I wanted to, I, I knew that I was never going to be a Yiddish writer. I mean, that was not going to happen. I mean, I fought so hard with English. Was Poetry and writing was such a struggle for me in English. I was not going to give that up, and I wasn't even going to try. But I thought I could mirror sort of my own half in and half out kind of experience, which I thought also might resonate with other people that were maybe not as much in as I was, but were still in and wanted to connect. Um, and that's really what started motivating me and motivated me to start looking at Yiddish women writers, Yiddish women polit, you know, politicals, whatever, in different forms. I wrote a long essay about four different Yiddishists. One was um, Sora Schneera, who who is the founder of the Basyankov movement, an Orthodox movement, was a Yiddishist. Gina Medim, who was a communist, who she was married originally to the to Vladimir Medim, the Bundist. She came out after he died. Um, Hannah Heller-Rosenthal, who was a Bundist, and Kadya Molodovsky. They were all Yiddishists. They probably could not, like I wrote at the end of the article, these four women couldn't have stood each other for five minutes in the Mm -hmm. same room without somebody stomping out in rage. But they were all Yiddishists, you know, and they were all throughout. So I became much more engaged in that by doing the research that fed my poetry. You know, I mean, um, thinking about Friedelstock, the reason I was so interested in Friedelstock was that she actually wrote a novel in English. She's one of the few, because most Yiddish writers, when they came here, continued being Yiddish writers. They had an audience, they had, print. you know, they had newspapers, they had printing presses. They remained Yiddish writers. She was unusual in that she tried to do something in English. So I was interested in that. And very honestly, I think, Frolovstuck is more about me than about her, because right. you know. But I, it was an imaginative recreation. I mean, it was a made-up thing. So um, it was complicated, you know. You don't, you don't just switch languages, you know. That's one of the, I think, one of the real horrors for uh, writers and artists who emigrate. They yeah. lose that that you know. And what Cheslov Milos says, language is the only homeland. You know, and he should know <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: he spent so much time in exile. Um, so that's sort of my I mean, I it was very, it was complicated, it wasn't, it wasn't instantaneous, but I did want, I mean, and I'm always kind of I'm sad that sometimes people say, Oh, you're a Yiddish writer, and I say, No, 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 I'm not. I'm really an English writer that tries to use Yiddish where it's appropriate and when it's appropriate. Um, so, um, that's mm. sort of the history of that. It was a very painful, I mean, the whole language, um, period was very painful to me. I mean, I was very humiliated. I was thrown out of honors English in high school.
0: Mm.
1: So I was great in math and I was great in all the sciences, but I was terrible in English. Um, so it was been uh it's it was a hard road i mean for me it was a very difficult road but the thing with the yiddish was really once i got back to that in my 30s in my late 30s doing my own research it was really very gratifying and really kind of
0: joyful almost interesting that you uh, came out as it were in two ways in your 30s didn't you uh yeah, I did. yeah very interesting um i want to talk a little bit more about the idea of translation because I mean, it's fascinating to me that by the age of eight, you could speak Swedish and Polish and all this. It's, 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 all, it's, all, it's, it's almost getting to a humorous level. Uh, very impressive. Um, so I let was... Me, I, let me just, let me just yeah, interrupt you for yeah. a minute.
1: I had a friend whose daughter was taking a course in college and she had an assignment and she was doing something about languages. Mm. This is like a 20-year-old. And this happened just a few years ago. And she, um, Susan said, well, go interview Irina. You know, she was an immigrant. So she comes and she says, and you know, she wanted to know what happened when I came here. And I said, well, I went to school and I learned English. She said, well, how did you learn it? I said, I don't know. They just, you know, I just went to school. She said, you mean they didn't have like ESL or... <laughs> and that's what happened in those days. In Sweden, they threw me into a Swedish school. Not a word of Swedish was said in the house where I lived. I learned Swedish, I don't know. They sent me to English. Nobody, my mother never spoke a word. She was learning English. I learned English. (laughs)
0: It's almost a cliche that we lose, supposedly we lose this capacity as we get older. The children are, some children are like sponges for languages. uh, But yeah, I'm not like that. That's uh, that's amazing. I wasn't
1: either, totally. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. it was too much. I mean, I think try to learn Yiddish and English at the same time. It was like,
0: I don't know. Um, So, yeah, I want to get back to just uh, for a moment, the idea of of translation. So in this, in these poems, you do, um, you even just mentioned it, that, for example, the word you couldn't find an equivalent in English. Um, So there are, there's the possibility of translation, but there's also the challenges and maybe impossibility of translation. I would like to take that translate, if you will, that to another area, which is history. Translating historical context, historical ideas, the impost, for example, um, how do you respond to activists evoking the Holocaust in relationship to other histories? That's an act of translation in a way, uh, for, I'm thinking of Norman Finkelstein who, who often compares, uh, Gaza to the Warsaw ghetto. Um, I've heard activists recently talking about the actions right now of Israel in, in Gaza as like a ghetto, Liquidation. Are these comparisons apt? Is it useful to do this? What do you think?
1: I think that's, you've identified two separate things. One is it apt, and two is it useful. I mean, mm-hmm. they're 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 different. Um, you know, it's about. <laughs> I think I don't even know how to articulate this. Even going back like, whatever, however, 50 years, 40 years. Since the Second World War, it's been, when something horrible happens or people act in the most disgusting, bigoted, however you want it, whether it's racist or anti-Semitic or Islamophobic, whatever, people say Nazis. I mean, people, we, we throw the word Nazis around. And what's happened is that's become the sort of measure or um, an equivalency of how bad something is, whatever. It's the worst. It's the absolute worst. Um, historically, we know that that's not true. I mean, I know Jews, I mean, there is, it depends who's using it. I mean, Jews use, the. I think, misuse the Holocaust um, in a kind of exceptionalism. It's the mm-hmm. worst thing that's ever happened. It hasn't happened to anybody else. I think Masha Gessen wrote a really good article in the New Yorker, discussing this, um, and and I totally agree. There's been, there's been lots. I mean, genocide has been around for a long time, and it didn't only happen to the Jews. Um, so there's there's that kind of a that kind of um, I think in, in It could be apt, it could be not apt, but it's not like that's the only measure of things. The other thing is is it useful? I don't, I mean, on some level, it depends who is addressing it. I think Jews are particularly sensitive to comparisons. My feeling is that if that, I'm very torn about it. On the one hand, I feel that if I talk about the Holocaust in relationship to Gaza and Israel right now, people will immediately stop listening to me. Mm. Jews, Jews will immediately stop. Then I don't think it's very useful. Then I don't know what, I mean, I don't know legally and internationally. I've read about this. I can, You know, whether this is technically, according to law, genocide or ethnic cleansing, whatever you want to term, you want to use it. I know it's very, very bad. I know that it evokes feelings in me. What I see when I see what's going on in Gaza, this is not that I forget what happened in Israel. But when I see what's going on in Gaza right now, I want it to stop. Mm and i don't know how to talk i mean we've 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 put so many clamps on so many words i mean it's very difficult you can't say genocide you can't say ethnic cleansing you can't say nakba you can't say um what is it war crimes you can't say from the river to the sea you can't say palestine you you're can't- talking
0: You're talking among Zionists or among mainstream Jews. That's what you're saying.
1: It's not only about mainstream Jews. We have laws against BDS. I mean, in the United States, I guess you don't have them in Canada. I don't know how many states have laws where you you have to. What was I just read somewhere in Nebraska or Kansas, one of the states somewhere where you have to swear loyalty to never uh, boycott Israel for some Something has nothing to do with the Middle East, you know, for some kind of office. We have laws in the United States against mm. us. it's not just among Jews. Right. Um, which, you know, and it's called anti-Semitic. I mean, mm. um, so I think it's very, very tr- it's become almost impossible for anybody to say this is wrong. <laughs> Let me put it as, pl- you know, as simple as wrong and right. This is wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um I'm very, very frustrated. I I can't remember, I'm very bad on names, but Peter Baynard had a, a Holocaust scholar, an Israeli Holocaust scholar, talk about um talk about this issue. Mm-hmm. And I have to say he convinced me to some degree of not really talking about the Holocaust. I mean, my mother, for example, one of the things I I once wrote in one essay, and this was during the First Intifada, we were watching something, and I said, what does this remind you of, Ma? And she said, I know what it reminds me of. And she wouldn't say it. it. She wouldn't say it, but she knew what it reminded her of. So, uh, yeah, sorry. No, so, I mean... The analogies, I think Masha Gessen is right in a way. I mean, certain things resonate in a certain way, and you respond to it. And I'm sort of at a loss about the vocabulary that you can use that will not... I mean, for example, I know people that use settler and colonize all the time, and I know that it's a t- complete turnoff. People just stop listening. To me, let's let's grant that it's accurate. Let's grant. But it's not it's, it's if it stops people from even listening three more words, then what's the point?
0: What do you say to a young Irina Klepfisch who writes in Beshert? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing work. Uh, that you talk about American hollowness, referring to marginalization of the poor in the in the United States, and you characterize this hollowing out as a holocaust without smoke. So what is that? Can you elaborate on that idea?
1: Well, you know that happened. I was thinking about that when I was in graduate school in Chicago and I was watching the whole neighborhood just being devastated. Um and I was also um I was I was my first encounter, you know, I moved out of New York City, went to Chicago, it was really my first encounter with um with uh non-Jews and non-whites. I was a uh, I was a medical transcriber at the hospital. That's how I sort of earned my way through graduate school. And I was the only white person in the Steno pool. Um, And uh, I was there for like, I don't know, four years or something. I did full-time during the summer, part-time during the year. So I got to know a lot of women's, black women's lives about which I would have never, I had never known about. I mean, I sort of vaguely knew about Mm -hmm. class and whatever. and there was that I had non-Jewish friends for the first time. I mean, it was a kind of. But I was watching this neighborhood being destroyed, destroyed by urban renewal and the university. And I was also hearing about people's lives. I, there is, I mean, genocide. There's a kind of genocide that occurs daily. That's a grinding down and of people and people's ordinary lives. And for me, given my background, that is a kind of reference point. It would be hard for me to ignore. Um and uh I don't know people are offended by that. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. Um but I believe in it. I believe that mm-hmm. you don't have to put somebody in a gas chamber to kill them. Yeah. I mean, people people have really, really hard lives. And and uh, that could be and You know, this is all about, you know, uh, all the fights that they're having now about education, about what you teach in school in the United States. I don't know if there are similar fights going on in Canada, but it's a nightmare. It's just a total nightmare of this revisionist of, you know, black people learn skills while they were slaves. I mean, I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's just horrific. So for me, it's kind of a natural thing to sort of refer back to my own background. Um, whether that's good in a political argument is a totally different question, but I don't totally believe in that. I mean, I believe that people can be really ground down. I believe that. And, um, and they're annihilated. Their dreams are annihilated. They don't achieve what they are. Some people rise above it. And a lot of people under circumstance, I don't mean to say everybody, but there's an attempt to do that. When you raise an entire neighborhood, Yeah. what are you saying when you do that? And you mm-hmm. dislocate people, and you and you break up communities and ties and relationships. And you know, I mean, it, it is a kind of it's a kind of genocide without smoke. I mean, I think that that it people unless it ends up in a gas chamber, people say well, it's not it's not that bad. <laughs> Let me put it that way. No, unless yeah. it ends up in a gas chamber, it's not that bad. Well, that's not true. It's just not true. And um, and I find that repellent. You know, I don't... Um, I know that there's all different kinds. And, you know, it's ironic in some ways because the majority of Jews didn't die in gas chambers during the mm. war. They mm. didn't. <laughs> that's mm. not where they died. They died in ghettos and they died outside. I mean in labor camps and all kinds of places. Um, So, but that's what's used as a measuring. Um, So if they're not lining, if they're literally not lining up though, at this point I sometimes wonder about in in Gaza, if they're not, people are not being lined up against the wall and shot, it's not as bad. I mean, that's just ridiculous.
0: Well, I would also say, I, I would also say that some people seem to be able to use the Holocaust and others can't. So Zionists and Israeli politicians evoke the Holocaust constantly uh, in the as an excuse or as a rationale for violence. Yes,
1: uh, and it's a kind of fear-mongering kind of, I mean, it's used in the other direction, absolutely mm-hmm, mm-hmm. misused. And there's, you know, I mean, I've seen, I mean, it sort of makes me laugh sometimes where the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was, you know, I mean, was somehow really for... To, for the creation of the of the state of Israel there's is like some kind of direct connection I mean mm. it's ridiculous I mean the, the I mean the the kind of almost kind of um I was going to say kidnapping but that's not the word I want but the stealing sort of of justification of Israel to use the Holocaust as the justification you know it's really interesting to think of and if I wish they would play, all the times that Netanyahu and other Israelis addressed the Jewish uh, diaspora and said, Come here, here you'll be safe, here you'll be. I wish they could do a newsreel of that. I mean, I don't know how many times I every time there was something that happened in France, for example. Come to Israel and be safe, Jews. I mean, to play right now. I mean, it's and I think that's what the Israelis are experiencing right now, is the realization. And they, they don't know what to do. I mean, the realization
0: were, that Israel is not safe.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, has not been safe. And they were in a pressure cooker that was about to explode. Well, that, always struck... that Justifies anything that happened on October 7th, but it was, something was going to happen mm-hmm. eventually.
0: It's a, something... it always, it always struck me that a country that has normalized, Oh, everyone has, you know, you have to have a safe room or a bomb shelter under your house and that's normal uh strikes me as 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 you know sick or problematic or or,
1: uh yeah i mean it's uh so i don't know i mean i don't know about i mean the holocaust i've I've been ranting about the holocaust not being uh, used and misused since like the my first essays i think Hmm. that, that i wrote and um i don't know i wrote a piece that i wanted to possibly publish and then um I sent it to the New York Times and they didn't publish it of course but I really I'm really backtracking on it because I think it turns people off and I don't know I'm I'm trying to figure out how to reach people how do we reach people and especially in Israel I'm sympathetic you know I understand that they don't see what we see here on television about what's going on in Gaza there's very limited uh, visuals, for example. Haaretz is one of the few places that describes what's going on. And they are very much traumatized. I mean, I think it's a small country. People mm-hmm. do know each other. I mean, I was actually on one of the, I went in 1962, 63 when I was in Israel. I was on one of those kibbutzim that was, uh, that was attacked.
0: Right.
1: And so it makes me think about who who's alive there that I met. I mean, I don't know.
0: -hmm.
1: It's a huge trauma, I think. And almost for that reason, I wish, I wish they had not reacted immediately and thought about it. I mean, so I mean, it's that's gone. But um I think they're realizing that they're not safe and um and that they haven't been safe. It's been a delusion. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. been a delusion. Um and I don't know where it's, I mean, I don't know. It's a whole, to me, it's all bound up also with the election here in November. I'm very, I'm one of these crazy things where I feel like if you don't vote for Biden, then there's really no, I mean, where is Trump on on Arabs and Palestinians? Do you think he's going to do them any favors? I mean, to me, there's no hope with Trump over there so it's sort of it's hard i mean it's a very hard decision but it's also i don't know i'm not much of a purist i feel like we have to make compromises and and this biden business is is a real real compromise but on the other hand when i think about trump being president and what he's already done with israel what he's already indicated about doing with israel mm. i have no doubt that somehow palestinians are it's definitely going to be expelled. Definitely. that I don't know. It's not going to be. It's going to be even worse than it is now. I don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: I, it's
1: a real. I mean, to say that I can't bring myself morally to vote for him. Is, you mean
0: Biden? You mean Biden?
1: Yeah, it is to me about yourself and not about what can happen. I don't know whether that's expressing it correctly. Do you understand what I'm saying? It
0: makes perfect sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense.
1: It's a strategic thing. It's not about, um, it's, it's really not about whether Biden is moral or not. And it's not even about whether you're moral or not, but it is about looking forward and seeing what the consequences of that other win you know, staying away, I mean, people, what people say is they're not going to vote for, for Biden, but they're not going to vote and that's a vote for Trump. I mean, that's, that kind of staying away to me, my interpretation of that is practically speaking, though, that's not what they intend. That's what would happen.
0: Um, it's interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that, that maybe is unanswerable, but, um, have you always been this way, or have you, with age, come to a place of pragmatism? Would your thirty-five-year-old self have said we need to be practical and think about voting in this way, or would you have been more kind of hardline?
1: First of all, I'm not sure I was that. I thought that much about it. I mean, I was very. It took me a long time, uh, David. I mean, I did. You didn't. You know, experience.
0: 50 years yeah, you know.
1: I mean, it took you know i had to deal have you have you been in groups where you have to do consensus
0: yes yes it's a nightmare
1: <laughs> have you been through that <laughs> yes. nightmare? it's a real education about compromise yeah. I yeah. Mean, it's true and it, it, you have to experience that you have to in some ways experience that um and i've been through all of that i mean i there were the famous lesbian wars. I don't know if you, um, it's, it's, I don't know, I'm not even sure I would have said this two years ago. I mean, I think very, very honestly, I am terrified of a Trump presidency. Yes, I am terrified of it, and um, which is very different than what I feel about Biden. Um, I'm not terrified of him, I'm disgusted with. Him.
0: So but it's a, it's, a, it's your your, your ch- the menu is terrified or disgusted. Those are the
1: <laughs> and and with and I have to say, I do have some hope with Biden that if he's reelected, that something may come out of it, may be mm. a piece, some kind of piece, something. Um, I mean, do you think Trump even is even knows the term to state? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean I you know, I mean. It's just a nightmare, the mm-hmm. idea of being to me. So I I feel like I'm being very much guided by that right now. Now, maybe I'll feel different. I don't know. I don't know what I would have said. Maybe I would have been more, you know, one of the advantages, and even then, since you know what consensus means, one of the advantages of doing alternative stuff is that you're sort of in control until you get to know better your partners then you feel you realize you didn't know them at all right um and you find out these things you know like when we started conditions magazine we were really gung-ho and then we worked together for like a year and we realized god we have such different (laughs) things you know that we started arguing with each other and so i don't know what i would have said then whether i was that much of a purist um I mean, I've always been, I've wanted very concrete things. I wanted to start a press. I wanted to start, you know, uh, a magazine. I wanted to create a kind of anthology that Melanie and I, you know, these were very, very specific things that I wanted to do. And, and even like with Melanie's, and when we did the anthology, we both had to compromise on certain things. We disagreed on stuff. Um in order to get something done, and I don't know that I thought about it as consciously as I'm doing now, because I don't think I've ever been faced with this kind of a choice. Mm I can't remember anything in any of my activism that was this dire. I mean, that really, you know, um, I mean, aside from the fact that he'll make hell, our lives, everybody's lives practically hell in this country. Um, think of what he'll do internationally.
0: Um, I would like to wrap it up because we we have you've been very generous with your time and I, and you did there was a there was a uh, mention a little glimmer of positivity. You said that maybe if Biden's reelected, there could be uh, peace or maybe maybe. So I, I just want to where do you find positivity in your life right now? Where does when I, Irina Cleffish wakes up and you think about the day ahead? Where do you find uh, no, light?
1: Where, where do I find light? I find light in... Um, well, one thing I'm happy, even though it was it was a chore at the beginning, was doing my workshop, for example. I'm always amazed. One of the reasons I like doing workshops is because I'm always just floored by what people write. I mean, and the inventiveness and the difference. I mean, when I do a workshop, so just we,
0: tell the pe- tell the folks what the workshop is. Just yeah, it's
1: a creative writing workshop. I called it the, the final draft, which is how do you decide when something is final? <laughs> right. And um, I prepare for it. I usually prepare a reader of stuff that we can discuss together, and then I ask. I either I give them both exercises, and I ask them to contribute something um, original that we can all discuss. So both because of the exercises and what they contribute originally, I'm always having new material in front of me. And it's always very, very interesting to me um, what people come up with. I'm never bored. I mean, and I'm never stale. It's always very, very exciting. And I have to say, it was, it's been, I had a translation workshop 10 weeks at the Worker's Circle last semester. And I had this three-week workshop, which I've extended a little bit. And it's such a relief and it's such a return to what we really value to be able to focus for an hour and a half in discussion that's not about horrors necessarily, but that's about whatever people value. And um, that makes me really happy. I'm sad that it's ending. (laughs) We have two more sessions, one tomorrow and one on Tuesday. And I've had these sessions now since the fall because the worker circle was for ten weeks. It started almost. It started right after October seventh, um, and I think that that's really important. So I try, try to stay in touch with friends. What are you reading aside from talking politics, which everybody talks about endlessly? what are you reading what are you seeing what's happening in your life that kind of trying to hold on to the sense of normalcy Mm -hmm. i once wrote that normalcy is all that we ever want that we really just strive i mean when are we going to be normal we everything's been so abnormal so for so long yeah that if you can catch two hours or an hour and a half or a movie or whatever um that I think is very much, re- I don't know if it's optimistic, but I think it's grounding. Yeah. And it's sort of a reminder, I think, that we're still human beings and not political machines and at the mercy of all kinds of things. So I don't know if optimism is the right word, but it it keeps me going. Let's put it that way. It energizes me. Um, mm.
0: Keeps me thinking. <laughs> this is a good... Good place to end on a positive note. On a, on a, on a, again, I don't know if it's optimism, but it's certainly positive. Um, thank you so much, Irina, for this uh, illuminating and wonderful conversation. Thank you uh, so
1: much. Um, I really enjoyed this. I mean, um, I wish I could know more about Canada.
0: <laughs> well, uh, we can. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll fill you in to the best of my knowledge. Okay, uh, it's an interesting place.
1: <laughs> I would like. I would actually like to hear about it uh, okay. seriously.
0: Irina Klepfish, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, we've come to the end of our show. We'd like to thank you for listening, and we'd like to thank everyone who made our podcast possible, including United Jewish People's Order Executive Director Serena Seren and our guest, Irina Klepfish. This podcast was recorded at Walt Whitman Studios in Toronto, The theme music was composed by Serena Sarin, with help from me. My name is David Wall. Until next time, Seid gesund.